0: CHAPTER Seven OF SEA AND SARDINIA BY D. H. LAWRENCE This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Antony Ogus TO TERRA NOVA AND THE STEAMER The morning was very clear and blue. We were up betimes. The old dame of the inn, very friendly this morning. We were going already. Oh, but we hadn't stayed long in Nuoro. Didn't we like it? Yes, we like it. We would come back in the summer when it was warmer. Ah, yes, she said, artists came in the summer. Yes, she agreed, Nuoro was a nice place, simpatico, molto simpatico, and really it is, and really she was an awfully nice, capable human old woman, and I had thought her a bell dame when I saw her ironing. She gave us good coffee and milk and bread, and we went out into the town. There was the real Monday morning atmosphere of an old, same-as-ever, provincial town. The vacant feeling of work resumed after Sunday rather reluctantly. Nobody buying anything, nobody quite at grips with anything. The doors of the old-fashioned shops stood open. In Nuoro they have hardly reached the stage of window displays. One must go inside, into the dark caves, to see what the goods are. Near the doorways of the draper's shop stood rolls of that fine scarlet cloth for the women's costumes. In a large tailor's window four women sat sewing, tailoring, and looking out of the window with eyes still Sunday emancipate and mischievous. Detached men, some in the black and white, stood at the street corners as if obstinately avoiding the current of work. Having had a day off, the salt taste of liberty still lingering on their lips, they were not going to be dragged so easily back into harness. I always sympathise with these rather sulky, forlorn males who insist on making another day of it. It shows a spark of spirit still holding out against our over-harnessed world. There is nothing to see in Nuoro, which to tell the truth is always a relief. Sights are an irritating bore, thank heaven there isn't a bit of perugino or anything pisan in the place that i know of happy is the town that has nothing to show what a lot of stunts and affectations it saves life is then life not museum stuffing one could saunter along the rather inert narrow monday morning street and see the women having a bit of a gossip and see an old crone with a basket of bread on her head and see the unwilling ones hanging back from work and the whole current of industry disinclined to flow. Life is life, and things are things. I am sick of gaping things, even Perugino's. I have had my thrills from Carpaccio and Botticelli, but now I've had enough. But I can always look at an old grey-bearded peasant in his earthy-white drawers and his black-waist frill, wearing no coat or overgarment, but just crooking along beside his little ox-waggon. I'm sick of things, even Perugino. The sight of the woman with the basket of bread reminded us that we wanted some food. So we searched for bread. None, if you please. It was Monday morning, eaten out. There would be bread at the Forno, the oven. Where was the oven? Up the road and down a passage. I thought we should smell it. But no, we wandered back our friends had told us to take tickets early for perhaps the bus would be crowded so we bought yesterday's pastry and little cakes and slices of native sausage and still no bread i went and asked our old hostess there is no fresh bread it hasn't come in yet she said never mind give me stale so she went and rummaged in a drawer oh dear oh dear the women have eaten it all but perhaps over there, she pointed down the street, they can give you some. They couldn't. I paid the bill, about twenty-eight francs, I think, and went out to look for the bus. There it was, in a dark little hole, they gave me the long ticket strips, first class to Terranova. They cost some seventy francs, the two. The QB was still vainly, aimlessly, looking along the street for bread. Ready when you are said our new driver rather snappily. He was a pale, cross-looking young man with brown eyes and fair ginger hair. So in we clambered, waved farewell to our old friends, whose bus was ready to roll away in the opposite direction. As we bumped past the piazza, I saw Velveteen standing there, isolate and still, apparently scowling with unabated irritation. I'm sure he has money, why, the first class yesterday otherwise, and I'm sure she married him because he is a townsman with property. Out we rolled on our last Sardinian drive. The morning was of a bell-like beauty, blue and very lovely. Below, on the right, stretched the concave valley, tapestried with cultivation. Up into the morning light rose the high, humanless hills with wild, treeless moor-slopes but there was no glass in the left window of the coupe and the wind came howling in cold enough i stretched myself on the front seat the q-b screwed herself into a corner and we watched the land flush by how well this new man drove the long-nosed freckled one with his gloomy brown eyes how cleverly he changed gear so that the automobile mewed and purred comfortably like a live thing enjoying itself and how dead he was to the rest of the world wrapped in his gloom like a young bus driving hamlet his answers to his mates were monosyllabic or just no answers at all he was one of those responsible capable morose souls who do their work with silent perfection and look as if they were driving along the brink of doom say a word to them and they'll go over the edge but gentle au fond, of course. Fiction used to be fond of them, a sort of ginger-haired young mechanic, Mr. Rochester, who has even lost the Jane illusion. Perhaps it was not fair to watch him so closely from behind. His mate was a bit of a bounder, with one of those rakish military caps whose soft tops cock sideways or backwards. He was in Italian khaki, riding breeches and puttees, he smoked his cigarette bounderishly, but at the same time, with peculiar gentleness, he handed one to the ginger Hamlet. Hamlet accepted it, and his mate held him alight as the bus swung on. They were like man and wife. The mate was the alert and wide-eyed Jane Eyre, whom the ginger Mr. Rochester was not going to spoil in a hurry. The landscape was different from yesterday's. As we dropped down the shallow winding road from Nuoro, quite quickly the moors seemed to spread on either side, treeless, bushy, rocky, desert. How hot they must be in summer! One knows from Grazia dell'Edda's books. A pony with a low trap was prancing unhappily in the roadside. We slowed down and slid harmlessly past. Then again on we whizzed down the looped road, which turned back on itself as sharply as a snake that has been wounded. Hamlet darted the bus at the curves, then softly padded round like an angel, then off again for the next parabola. We came out into wide, rather desolate moorland valley spaces, with low rocks away to the left, and steep slopes rocky bushy on the right. Sometimes groups of black-and-white men were working in the forlorn distances. A woman in the madder costume led a panniered ass along the wastes. The sun shone magnificently. Already it was hotter here. The landscape had quite changed. These slopes looked east and south to the sea. They were sun-wild and sea-wild. The first stop was where a wild, rough lane came down the hill to our road the corner stood a lonely house and in the roadside the most battered life-weary old carriage I have ever seen. The jaunty mate sorted out the post. The boy with the tattered battered brown carriage and brown pony signed the book as we all stood in the roadway. There was little wait for a man who was fetching up another parcel. The postbag and parcels from the tattered carriage were received and stowed and signed for. We walked up and down in the sun to get warm. The landscape was wild and open round about. Pip goes Mr. Rochester peremptorily at the horn. Amazing how obediently we scuffle in. Away goes the bus rushing towards the sea. Already one felt that peculiar glare in the halfway heavens, that intensification of the light in the lower sky which is caused by the sea to sunward. Away in front three girls in brown costume are walking along the side of the white high road, going with panniers towards a village up a slight incline. They hear us, turn round, and instantly go off their heads, exactly like chickens in the road. They fly towards us, crossing the road, and swifter than any rabbits, they scuttle, one after another, into a deep side track, like a deep ditch at right angles to the road. There, as we roll past, they are all crouched, peering out at us fearfully, like creatures from their hole. The busmate salutes them with a shout, and we roll on towards the village on the low summit. It is a small, stony, hen-scratch place of poor people. We roll on to a standstill. There is a group of poor people. The women wear the dark brown costume, and again the bolero has changed shape. It is a rather fantastic low corset, curiously shapen, and originally, apparently, made a wonderful, elaborate brocade, but look at it now. There is an altercation because a man wants to get into the bus with two little black pigs, each of which is wrapped in a little sack, with its face and ears appearing like a flower from a wrapped bouquet. He is told that he must pay the fare for each pig as if it were a Christian cristo del mondo a pig a little pig and paid for as if it were a christian he dangles the pig bouquets one from each hand and the little pigs open their black mouths and squeal with self-conscious appreciation of the excitement they are causing dio benedetto it is a chorus but the bus mate is inexorable every animal even if it were a mouse must be paid for and have a ticket as if it were a christian the pigmaster recoils, stupefied with indignation, a pig bouquet under each arm. How much you charge for the fleas you carry, asks a sarcastic youth. A woman sitting sewing a soldier's tunic into a little jacket for her urchin and thus beating the sword into a ploughshare stitches unconcernedly in the sun. Round-cheeked but rather slatternly damsels giggle the pig master, speechless with fury slings the pig bouquets like two bottles one on either side the saddle of the ass whose halter is held by a grinning but also malevolent girl malevolent against pig prices that is the pigs looking abroad from their new situation squeal the eternal pig protest against an insufferable humanity and jamo and jamo says Ginger Mr. Rochester in his quiet but intense voice. The busmate scrambles up, and we charge once more into the strong light to seaward. In we roll into essay, a dilapidated, sun-smitten, God-forsaken little town, not far from the sea. We descend in the piazza. There is a great false baroque façade to a church, up a wavering vast mass of steps and at the side a wonderful jumble of roundnesses, with a jumble of round tiled roofs peaked in the centre. It must have been some sort of convent, but it is eminently what they call a painter's bit, that pallid, big, baroque face at the top of the slow incline, and the very curious dark building at the side of it, with its several dark tiled round roofs, like pointed hats at varying altitudes the whole space has a strange spanish look neglected arid yet with a bigness and a dilapidated dignity and a stoniness which carry one back to the middle ages when life was violent and orose was no doubt a port and a considerable place probably it had bishops the sun came hot into the wide piazza with its pallid heavy façade up on the stony incline on one side and arches in a dark great courtyard and outer stairways of some unknown building away on the other, the road entering downhill from the inland and dropping out below to the sea-marshes and with the impression that once some single power had had the place in grip, had given this centre an architectural unity and splendour now lost and forgotten. Orosei was truly fascinating. But the inhabitants were churlish, "'We went into a sort of bar place, very primitive, and asked for bread. "'Bread alone?' said the churl. "'If you please.' "'There isn't any,' he answered. "'Oh, where can we get some, then?' "'You can't get any.' "'Really?' "'And we couldn't. "'People stood about glum, not friendly. "'There was a second great automobile, ready to set off for Tortoli, "'far to the south on the east coast.' Mandas is the railway junction both for Sorgano and Tortoli. The two buses stood near and communed. We prowled about the dead, almost extinct town, or call it village. Then Mr Rochester began to pip his horn peremptorily, so we scuffled in. The post was stowed away. A native in black broad cloth came running and sweating, carrying an ox blood suitcase, and said we must wait for his brother in law who was a dozen yards away. Ginger Mr. Rochester sat on his driver's throne and glared in the direction whence the brother-in-law must come. His brow knitted irritably, his long, sharp nose did not promise much patience. He made the horn roar like a sea-cow, but no brother-in-law. "'I'm going to wait no longer,' said he. "'Oh, a minute, a minute! That won't do us any harm,' expostulated his mate." no answer from the long-faced long-nosed ginger hamlet he sat statuesque but with black eyes looking daggers down the still void road va bene he murmured through closed lips and leaned forward grimly for the starting handle patience 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 a moment why cried the mate cried the black broadcloth man simply sizzling and dancing in anguish on the road round the suitcase which stood in the dust don't go god's love don't start he's got to catch the boat he's got to be in rome to-morrow he won't be a second he's here he's here he's here this startled the fate fixed sharp-nosed driver he released the handle and looked round with dark and glowering eyes no one in sight the few glum natives stood round, unmoved. Thunder came into the gloomy, dark eyes of the Rochester. Absolutely nobody in sight. Click! went his face into a look of almost seraphic peace as he pulled off the brakes. We were on an incline, and insidiously, almost subtly, the great bus started to lean forwards and steal into motion. "'Oh, MacKay, what a will you've got!' cried the mate clambering into the side of the now seraphic-looking rochester love of god god yelled the broadcloth seeing the bus melt forwards and gather momentum he put his hands up as if to arrest it and yelled in a wild howl oh bepin bepin oh but in vain already we had left the little groups of onlookers behind we were rolling downwards out of the piazza Broadcloth had seized the bag and was running beside us in agony out of the piazza we rolled. Rochester had not put on the engines, and we were just simply rolling down the gentle incline by the will of God into the dark outlet street. We melted towards the still invisible sea, suddenly a yell, Oh ah et qua qua, qua qua gasped broadcloth four times, he's here and then. "'Beppin, she's going, she's going!' "'Beppin appeared, a middle-aged man, also in black broad cloth, "'with a very scrubby chin and a bundle, running towards us on fat legs. "'He was perspiring, but his face was expressionless and innocent-looking. "'With a sardonic flicker of a grin, half of spite, half of relief, "'Rochester put on the brakes again, and we stopped in the street.' A woman tottered up, panting and holding her breast. Now for farewells. And Yamo, said Rochester curtly, looking over his shoulder and making his fine nose curl with malice, and instantly he took off the brakes again. The fat woman shoved Beppin in, gasping farewells, the brother-in-law handed in the ox-blood-red suitcase tottering behind, and the bus surged savagely out of Orosei. Almost in a moment we had left the town on its slope, and there below us was a river winding through marshy flats to the sea, to where small white surf broke on a flat, isolated beach, a quarter of a mile away. The river ran rapidly between stones, and then between belts of high seer reeds, high as a man. These tall reeds advanced almost into the slow, horizontal sea, from which stood up a white glare of light, massive light over the low Mediterranean. Quickly we came down to the river level and rolled over a bridge. Before us, between us and the sea, rose another hill, almost like a wall with a flat top running horizontal, perfectly flat, parallel with the sea edge, a sort of narrow, long plateau. For a moment we were in the wide scoop of the river bed. Orosei stood on the bluff behind us away to the right the flat river marshes with the thick dead reeds met the flat and shining sea river and sea were one water the waves rippled tiny and soft foot into the stream to the left there was great loveliness the bed of the river curved upwards and inland and there was cultivation but particularly there were noble almond trees in full blossom how beautiful they were their pure silvery-pink gleaming so nobly like a transfiguration, tall and perfect in that strange cradled riverbed parallel with the sea. Almond trees were in flower beneath grey orosei. Almond trees came near the road, and we could see the hot eyes of the individual blossoms. Almond trees stood on the upward slope before us, and they had flowered in such noble beauty there in that trough where the sun fell magnificent and the sea glare whitened all the air as with a sort of God presence they gleamed in their incandescent sky rosiness. One could hardly see their iron trunks in this weird valley. But already we had crossed and were charging up the great road that was cut straight slantwise along the side of the sea hill like a stairway outside the side of a house so the bus turned southward to run up this stairway slant to get to the top of the sea's long table-land. So we emerged, and there was the Mediterranean, rippling against the black rocks, not so very far away below on our right. For, once on the long table-land, the road turned due north, a long, white, dead-straight road running between strips of moorland, wild and bushy the sea was in the near distance blue blue and beating with light it seemed more light than watery and on the left was the wide trough of the valley where almond trees like clouds in a wind seemed to poise sky rosy upon the pale sun pale land and beyond which orosei clustered its lost grey houses on the bluff oh wonderful orosei with your almonds and your reedy river throbbing, throbbing with light and the sea's nearness, and also lost, in a world long gone by, lingering as legends linger on. It is hard to believe that it is real. It seems so long since life left it and memory transfigured it into pure glamour, lost away like a lost pearl on the East Sardinian coast. Yet there it is, with a few grumpy inhabitants who won't even give you a crust of bread, and probably there is malaria, almost sure, and it would be hell to have to live there for a month. Yet for a moment, that January morning, how wonderful! Oh, the timeless glamour of those Middle Ages, when men were lordly and violent and shadowed with death. Timor mortis conturbat me. The road rang along by the sea, above the sea, swinging gently up and down and running on to a sea-encroaching, hilly promontory in the distance. There were no high lands, the valley was left behind, and moors surrounded us, wild, desolate, uninhabited and uninhabitable moors, sweeping up gently on the left, and finishing where the land dropped low and cliff-like to the sea on the right. No life was now in sight, even no ship upon the pale blue sea, the great globe of the sky was unblemished and royal in its blueness and its ringing cerulean light over the moors a great hawk hovered rocks cropped out it was a savage dark bushed sky exposed land forsaken to the sea and the sun we were alone in the coupe the bus mate had made one or two sets at us but he rather confused us he was young, about twenty-two or three. He was quite good-looking, with his rakish military cap and his well-knitted figure in military clothes, but he had dark eyes that seemed to ask too much, and his manner of approach was abrupt, persistent and disconcerting. Already he had asked us where we were going, where we lived, whence we came, of what nationality we were, and was I a painter? Already he knew so much further we rather fought shy of him we ate those pale nuoro pastries they were just flaky pastry good but with nothing inside but a breath of air and we gnawed slices of very highly flavored nuoro sausage and we drank the tea and we were very hungry for it was past noon and we had eaten as good as nothing the sun was magnificent in heaven "'we rushed at a great purring speed along that moorland road just above the sea. "'And then the bus-mate climbed in to share the coupe with us. "'He put his dark beseeching and yet persistent eyes on us, "'sat plumb in front of us, his knees squared, "'and began to shout awkward questions in a strong curious voice. "'Of course it was very difficult to hear, for the great rushing bus made much noise.' we had to try to yell in our italian and he was as awkward as we were however although it said smoking forbidden he offered us both cigarettes and insisted we should smoke with him easiest to submit he tried to point us out features in the landscape but there were none to point except that where the hill ran to sea out of the moor and formed a cape he said there was a house away under the cliffs where coastguards lived. Nothing else. Then, however, he launched. He asked once more was I English and was the QB German. We said it was so. And then he started the old story. Nations popped up and down again like Punch and Judy. Italy, L'Italia, she had no quarrel with La Germania, never had had. No, no, good friends, the two nations.' But once the war was started, Italy had to come in. For why? Germany would beat France, occupy her lands, march down, and invade Italy. Best then join the war, whilst the enemy was only invading somebody else's territory. They are perfectly naive about it. That's what I like. He went on to say that he was a soldier. He had served eight years in the Italian cavalry. Yes, he was a cavalry man and had been all through the war. But he had not, therefore, any quarrel with Germany. No, war was war, and it was over. So let it be over. But France! Mala Francia! Here he sat forward on his seat, with his face near ours, and his pleading dog's eyes suddenly took a look of quite irrational, blazing rage. France! There wasn't a man in Italy who wasn't dying to get at the throat of France. France! Let there be war, and every Italian would leap to arms, even the old, even the old, anche vecchi. Yes, there must be war with France. It was coming, it was bound to come. Every Italian was waiting for it, waiting to fly at the French throat. For why, why? He had served two years on the French front, and he knew why. Ah, the French, for arrogance, for insolence. Dio, they were not to be born. The French, they thought themselves lords of the world, Signori del mondo, lords of the world and masters of the world, yes, they thought themselves no less. And what are they? Monkeys, monkeys, not better than monkeys. But let there be war, and Italy would show them. Italy would give them Signori del mondo. Italy was pining for war, all, all pining for war, with no one, with no one but France, ah, with no one. Italy loved everybody else, but France, France. We let him shout it all out till he was at the end of it. The passion and energy of him was amazing. He was like one possessed. I could only wonder, and wonder again. For it is curious what fearful passions these pleading, wistful souls fall into when they feel they have been insulted. It was evident he felt he had been insulted, and he went just beside himself. But, dear chap, he shouldn't speak so loudly for all Italy, even the old. The bulk of Italian men are only too anxious to beat their bayonets into cigarette holders and smoke the cigarette of eternal and everlasting peace to coincide at all with our friend. Yet there he was, raging at me in the bus as we dashed along the coast. And then, after a space of silence, he became sad again, wistful, and looked at us once more with those pleading brown eyes, beseeching, beseeching, he knew not what, and I'm sure I didn't know. Perhaps what he really wants is to be back on a horse in a cavalry regiment, even at war. But no, it comes out what he thinks he wants. When are we going to London? And are there many motor cars in England? Many, many? In America too? Do they want men in America? I say no. They have unemployment out there. They're going to stop immigration in April, or at least cut it down. Why? he asks sharply. Because they have their own unemployment problem. And the QB quotes how many millions of Europeans want to emigrate to the United States. His eye becomes gloomy. Are all nations of Europe going to be forbidden? he asks. Yes, and already the Italian government will give no more passports for America to emigrants. No passports? Then you can't go? You can't go, say I. By this time his hot-souled eagerness and his hot beseeching eyes have touched the QB. She asks him what he wants, and from his gloomy face it comes out in a rap, and Ari Fiori dell'Italia, to go out of Italy, to go out, away, to go away, to go away. It has become a craving, a neurasthenia with them where is his home his home is at a village a few miles ahead here on this coast we're coming to it soon there is his home and a few miles inland from the village he also has a property he also has land but he doesn't want to work it he doesn't want it in fact he won't bother with it he hates the land he detests looking after vines he can't even bring himself to try any more what does he want then he wants to leave Italy, to go abroad as a chauffeur, again the long beseeching look as of a distraught, pleading animal. He would prefer to be the chauffeur of a gentleman, but he would drive a bus, he would do anything, in England. Now he has launched it. Yes, I say, but in England also we have more men than jobs.' still he looks at me with his beseeching eyes so desperate too and so young and so full of energy and so longing to devote himself to devote himself or else to go off in an unreasonable paroxysm against the french to my horror i feel he is believing in my goodness of heart and as for motor-cars it is all i can do to own a pair of boots so how am i to set about employing a chauffeur we have all gone quiet again, so at last he climbs back and takes his seat with the driver once more. The road is still straight, swinging on through the moorland strip by the sea, and he leans to the silent, nerve-tense Mr. Rochester, pleading again. And at length Mr. Rochester edges aside and lets him take the driving wheel. And so now we are all in the hands of our friend, the busmate. He drives, not very well, it is evident he is learning. The bus can't quite keep in the grooves of this wild, bare road, and he shuts off when we slip down a hill, and there is a great muddle on the upslope when he tries to change gear. But Mr Rochester sits squeezed and silently attentive in his corner. He puts out his hand and swings the levers. There is no fear that he will let anything go wrong i would trust him to drive me down the bottomless pit and up the other side but still the beseeching mate holds the steering wheel and on we rush rather uncertainly and hesitatingly now and thus we come to the bottom of a hill where the road gives a sudden curve my heart rises an inch in my breast i know he can't do it and he can't o oh lord but the quiet hand of the freckled rochester takes the wheel we swerve on and the busmate gives up, and the nerve-silent driver resumes control. But the busmate now feels at home with us. He clambers back into the coupe, and when it is too painfully noisy to talk, he simply sits and looks at us with brown, pleading eyes. Miles and miles and miles goes this coast road, and never a village once or twice a sort of lonely watch-house and soldiers lying about by the road but never a halt everywhere moorland and desert uninhabited and we are faint with fatigue and hunger and this relentless travelling when oh when shall we come to siniscola where we are due to eat our midday meal oh yes says the mate there is an inn at siniscola where we can eat what we like siniscola siniscola we feel we must get down, we must eat. It is past one o'clock, and the glaring light and the rushing loneliness are still about us. But it is behind the hill in front. We see the hill. Yes, behind it is Siniscola, and down there on the beach are the bagni di Siniscola, where many forestieri, strangers, come in the summer. Therefore we set high hopes on Siniscola. From the town to the sea two miles, the bathers ride on asses sweet place and it is coming near really near there are stone fenced fields even stretches of moor fenced off there are vegetables in a little field with a stone wall there is a strange white track through the moor to a forsaken sea-coast we are near over the brow of the low hill and there it is a grey huddle of a village with two towers there it is we are there over the cobbles we bump and pull up at the side of the street. This is Siniscola, and here we eat. We drop out of the weary bus. The mate asks a man to show us the inn. The man says he won't, muttering. So a boy is deputed, and he consents. This is the welcome. And I can't say much for Siniscola. It is just a narrow, crude, stony place, hot in the sun, cold in the shade. In a minute or two we are at the inn, where a fat young man was just dismounting from his brown pony and fastening it to a ring beside the door the inn did not look promising the usual cold room opening gloomily on the gloomy street the usual long table with this time a foully blotched tablecloth and two young peasant madams in charge in the brown costume rather sordid and with folded white cloths on their heads the younger was in attendance she was a full-bosomed young hussy, and would be very queenly and cocky. She held her nose in the air, and seemed ready to jibe at any order. It takes one some time to get used to this cocky assertive behaviour of the young damsels, the who'll tread on the tail of my skirt bearing of the hussies, but it is partly a sort of crude defensiveness and shyness, partly it is barbaric méfiance or mistrust, and partly without doubt it is a tradition with Sardinian women that they must hold their own and be ready to hit first. This young sludge queen was all hit. She flounced her posterior round the table, planking down the lumps of bread on the foul cloth with an air of take it as a condescension that I wait on you, a subdued grin lurking somewhere on her face. It is not meant to be offensive, yet it is so. Truly it is just uncouthness. But when one is tired and hungry, we were not the only feeders. There was the man off the pony, and a sort of workman or porter or dazio official with him, and a smart young man, and later our hamlet driver. Bit by bit, the young damsel planked down bread, plates, spoons, glasses, bottles of black wine, whilst we sat at the dirty table in uncouth constraint, and looked at the hideous portrait of his reigning majesty of Italy. And at length came the inevitable soup, and with it the sucking chorus. The little maialino at Mandas had been a good one, but the smart young man in the country beat him. As water clutters and slavers down a choky gutter, so did his soup travel upwards into his mouth, with one long sucking stream of noise, intensified as the bits of cabbage etc found their way through the orifice they did all the talking the young men they addressed the sludge queen curtly and disrespectfully as if to say what's she up to her airs were finally thrown away still she showed off what else was there to eat there was the meat that had been boiled for the soup we knew what that meant I had as lief eat the foot of an old worsted stocking "'Nothing else, you sludge-queen?' "'No. What do you want anything else for?' "'Beef-steak? What's the good of asking for beef-steak or any other steak on a Monday? "'Go to the butcher's and see for yourself.' "'The hamlet, the pony-rider and the porter had the faded and tired chunks of boiled meat. "'The smart young man ordered eggs in padella, two eggs fried with a little butter. "'We asked for the same. "'The smart young man got his first and of course they were warm and liquid. So he fell upon them with a fork, and once he had got hold of one end of the eggs, he just sucked them up in a prolonged and violent suck, like a long, thin, ropey drink being sucked upwards from the little pan. It was a genuine exhibition. Then he fell upon the bread with loud chews. What else was there? A miserable little common orange. So much for the dinner. Was there cheese? no but the sludge queen they're quite good-natured really held a conversation in dialect with the young men which i did not try to follow our pensive driver translated that there was cheese but it wasn't good so they wouldn't offer it us and the pony man interpolated that they didn't like to offer us anything that was not of the best he said it in all sincerity after such a meal this roused my curiosity, so I asked for the cheese whether or not, and it wasn't so bad after all. This meal cost fifteen francs for the pair of us. End of chapter seven, section one.